My favorite part of the old Scooby-Doo cartoons was the unmasking. At the end of every episode, Scooby-Doo and the team would capture the suspect, and, and then there'd be a dramatic moment when the mask was removed and the true identity of the culprit was revealed for everyone to see. And usually it would be the carnival owner, and I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you pesky kids. Now, while Scooby-Doo is nowhere to be found in today's passage, we do witness an unmasking. We have a revealing of Jesus' true identity for everyone who's present to see. Now, you remember last week, we heard an extended discussion of Jesus' true identity. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he followed it up with, well, who do you say that I am? Friends, Jesus confirmed the revelation, the unmasking, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is, in fact, the Messiah, God's chosen and anointed deliverer. However, Jesus went on to explain to his disciples the title of Messiah. That word does not mean what you think that it means. Jesus predicted that the Messiah would be rejected, suffer, and die at the hands of those they'd come to save, but then he'd rise again. And Jesus taught those who would be his disciples that they should be ready for the same. However, at the very end of last week's passage, Jesus made an enigmatic statement that we didn't address, so I had Diane begin by reading with that verse in Matthew 16, verse 28. It says, Truly, I say to you, there will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this verse has been subject of all kinds of discussion and debate. And while there are a couple of valid possibilities as to what Jesus meant by this, the most likely explanation is that Jesus was referring to what we read about in today's passage, the transfiguration. Because the transfiguration is the unmasking at the end of the episode. It's the unmasking of the Son of Man, revealing him to be who he is in all of his kingdom glory. Now, verse 1 notes that this encounter on the mountain occurred six days after Jesus was teaching about his Messiahship, suffering, death, and resurrection. And friends, the timing is no accident. Six days is the same period of time before Moses was called up the mountain to encounter the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, verse 16 says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Friends, throughout the Old Testament, the mountain was a place of revelation. It was a place where you went to meet God. And after six days, Moses was called up the mountain to encounter the glory of God. And in the same way, after six days, the gospel tells us, Jesus and his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, ascended this mountain to see revealed the glory of the Messiah. And friends, ascending the mountain, verse 2, tells us that Jesus is changed. It says, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now, now friends, when it says that Jesus' face was altered, it, means, it doesn't mean that light was shining on his face. Light was shining from his face. Jesus wasn't illuminated from the outside. Jesus was illuminated from within. His face shines like the sun. 
His clothes become white as light. Friends, the mask is completely removed and the glory of God is fully revealed for Peter, James, and John to see. And remember, the question discussed in the previous chapter is the true identity of Jesus. And so here's the unmasking. This is the real definitive answer to the question of who is Jesus. The mask is removed. Jesus is revealed as everything that he says that he is and unimaginably more. Here on the mountain, Peter, James, and John catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus as he truly is. Friends, this is Jesus in his glory as he will be seen when he returns at the end of time to bring his final kingdom. The the last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And it literally was a revelation, a revealing that God gave to the disciple John. And in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, John sees Jesus coming at the end of time. And this is how he describes him. John, uh, sorry, Revelation 1, verses 14 through 16. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Church. Church, once Jesus' past is predicted suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection, at the end of time when he returns to bring his kingdom in its fullness and its perfection, at that time he will be revealed in his full glory. It's what we sang about this morning. Behold, he comes, shining, riding on the clouds and shining like the sun at the final trumpet call. Friends, the glory of Christ shining like the sun. How glorious is the exalted Jesus Christ? Revelation tells us at the very end of that book, Revelation 21, that the new Jerusalem, the eternal state, Revelation 21, 23, in the city of New Jerusalem, it has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Friends, Christ is glorious. He's so glorious that eternity needs no light other than him. Church, we forget. We forget just how glorious and perfect and holy and radiant Jesus is. Because when he first came to earth in his first coming, that glory was masked. It was veiled to us. We forget because when Jesus came the first time, friends, he came for his humiliation and death. And we only saw but glimpses of the glorious and radiant Christ. But for Peter, James and John on the mountain on that day, the mask is removed and Jesus is revealed for who he is, shining like the sun, shining in all of his kingdom, glory and majesty as he's going to shine for all of eternity. Later on in his life, the apostle Peter, who was there on the mountain with Jesus, recalled what he witnessed. And he wrote about it in his letter, Second Peter, chapter one, verses 16 through 18. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. We were eyewitnesses of the power on that mountain. We saw his glory. We heard the voice speak from heaven of his majesty. Friends, we saw Jesus for who he is, says Peter. And he says, believe me. Peter says, believe me. He is glorious. Church, the glory of Jesus Christ should be for us, the people of Jesus Christ, an encouragement. We serve not a humiliated Christ. We serve the glorious Christ. Jesus makes clear to his followers his humiliation on the cross, his humiliation unto death is inevitable, but it's only temporary. Friends, his humiliation is temporary. His exaltation is eternal. The humiliation is temporary, but the glory is eternal. And church, right now, it is the glorious and exalted Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for you. It is the glorious and exalted Christ who fills and empowers his church. It is the glorious and exalted Christ before whom demons flee, darkness trembles, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead come to life, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Church, we serve the risen, exalted, and glorious Jesus Christ. And one day, all of us, like Peter, James, and John, will see Christ as he truly is, glorious in holiness, majesty, and power. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power? Is he worthy of this? He is. But church, until that day, these glimpses have to sustain us. We have to content ourselves with these glimpses. But friends, as you glimpse Jesus and remember his glory, let the glory of Christ drive out your fear and awaken your faith. Let these glimpses of the glorious Christ lead you to truer repentance and greater obedience. Let the glimpses of the glorious Christ bring you to your knees in worship. And let the glimpses of the glorious Christ inspire you on your feet onto mission. Church, press on toward and proclaim boldly the glorious and exalted Jesus Christ. For he is worthy. Now, Peter, James, and John, as they're beholding Jesus so transfigured, they realize he's not alone. In verse 3, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. Now, in, Jew in Jewish thought, Moses represented the law, and Elijah was considered the greatest of the prophets. So being seen in the company of two men like Moses and Elijah would have been considered a great honor. But friends, the irony of this passage is that the honor belongs to Moses and Elijah who are standing in the presence of the glorified Christ. They are the ones who should be honored because this account makes clear that Jesus is greater. Now, like Peter, 
I am not at my very best when I'm put on the spot. So I can't fault Peter for his comment in verse four. Peter says, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, Peter's statement, while genuine, it misses the mark in two very fundamental ways. Now, first, when Peter talks about building tents, he isn't thinking about camping and roasting some s'mores with these great figures. Peter likely means by tent, tabernacle, or a tent of worship, not a place of residence. Because houses of worship for deities were usually built on a mountaintop, and with this unexpected and glorious revealing of Jesus in all that his glory and all that he is, Peter's response doesn't seem altogether unreasonable. But Peter's missing a fundamental point. The glorious Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, doesn't need some mini temple built to him on some mountaintop. In fact, when Jesus encountered the woman of Samaria at the well in John chapter 4, he had a conversation with her and he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain here nor on the mountain in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You all worship what you don't know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father. In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Friends, the glorious Christ will not be contained in a temple. He won't be worshipped only on a mountain. The glorious Christ will dwell with his people. And his people will worship him wherever they are in spirit and in truth. So Peter misses the mark in this way, but secondly, and more importantly, Peter misses the mark because he was so awed by the appearance of of the greats of Moses and Elijah, he essentially proposes three equal tents. As if Jesus should be revered equally alongside Moses and Elijah. Now you might remember We already saw as we studied the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew 5.17 he says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but but to fulfill them. Friends, Moses was the bringer of the law. Elijah is the representative of the prophets. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill them both, law and prophets, Moses and Elijah. And friends, if Jesus has come to fulfill them, then Jesus is saying that he's greater than they are. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah. Thus, Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. Friends, there is none equal to Jesus. There's none who can stand alongside him. There's none who should be worshipped alongside him. And God himself speaks into this debate in verse 5. He declares from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is declared unique. He's the unique son of God, the chosen one, and God commands, listen to him. Now, a devout Hebrew would know very well the prophecy of Moses, as recorded in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord spoke through Moses, 
saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. So the Lord had predicted through Moses, a greater prophet is going to come, and when he comes, listen to him. And so Jesus declares that is that God declares on behalf of Jesus, he is the prophet. Listen to him. He's the fulfillment of Moses. He's the fulfillment of Elijah. He is glorious and he is greater than either, for he is the fulfillment of them. So listen to him. And friends, this is reinforced because at the end of all of this, Jesus alone remains. Moses and Elijah are gone. And verse 8 says, when they but Jesus only. Christ alone remains. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus stands alone. My friends, you cannot treat Jesus as just one religious leader amongst many. You cannot put Jesus on equal footing with any other leader. Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, uniquely God's chosen Messiah. Jesus is not first amongst equals. Jesus has no equal. Jesus is not just a new author that you're going to add to your bookshelf. Jesus has come to clear the shelf. Jesus is not just one way amongst many. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. His transfiguration, his conversation with Moses and Elijah, the voice from heaven, they all clearly reveal that Jesus has no rival. He has no equal. He's greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So listen to him. My friends, how do you answer this question? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the unmasking, the definitive answer. Jesus is everything he's declared himself to be and unimaginably more. Jesus is glorious. Friends, are, are you trying to put Jesus on, on, the, on the level of just another religious figure? Are you trying to situate him as a great teacher amongst many equal great teachers. As we talked about last week, he hasn't even left that option open to us. So who do you say that he is? And church, followers of Jesus Christ, are you skulking about? Are you ashamed of Christ, embarrassed to stand on the wrong side of history, feeling powerless in the face of a cultural onslaught? Remember, you serve the glorious and exalted Christ. His power is greater. And friends, at the end of time, only one side of history is going to remain, and it's going to be his side of history, because only he will remain. So church, look to and be encouraged by these glimpses of the glorious Jesus Christ whom we serve. Now, on the way down the mountain, we hear Jesus again instruct his disciples, don't yet reveal everything you've seen until after my death and resurrection, because he knows expectations run high for Messiah. And he doesn't want the crowds to come just for miracles or spectacles. Jesus is seeking disciples. So he says, wait, wait until after my death and my resurrection to, to tell people about what you've just seen so that they understand fully and truly what Messiah means. 
And as the disciples walk down the mountain with Jesus, they're, they're wrestling with everything that they've experienced, and they engage in this conversation that Diane read for us about Elijah. And it's most likely because they were remembering the prophet Malachi. The Lord spoke through Malachi in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, saying, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So friends, Moses was Israel's first deliverer. And it was believed the prophet Elijah would appear on the great day when the Lord would again redeem and deliver his people. So Jesus makes clear, he goes, yes, yes, this is the great day of the Lord's deliverance. John the Baptist was the prophet like Elijah who is said to come first. And I am like Moses who have come to deliver the people. But again, let me tell you, disciples, it is not as you expect It's going to be. And he declares in verse 12, I'm going to suffer at the hands of those that I've come to deliver before my glorious exaltation will be a terrible humiliation. And my friends, will you still follow me? Now, remembering that the command that we heard on the mountain from God given was listen to Jesus, listen to him. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. We find that he comes down to him from the mountain and there's a lot more listening that the disciples still have to do. Now, you might recall in the Old Testament, after Moses encounters the glory of God on Mount Sinai, he descends from the mountain with the Ten Commandments in hand. He returns to find a big old party with a golden calf at the center of it and a whole bunch of faithlessness. And the scene that Jesus, Peter, James, and John encounter as they descend the mountain may not be quite as dire, but they also are confronted by great faithlessness. And Jesus is met immediately by a man whose son has a demon that the other nine disciples were unable to cast out, and he begs for Jesus' intervention. And we hear Jesus really quite exasperated in verse 17. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, let's be honest. The statement's a little bit confusing. Who's Jesus really frustrated with? Is he frustrated with this man whose son clearly needs healing? The disciples, the crowd? Now, this is one of those uh, stories in the Gospels that it helps us to get a little bit of context by looking at the recording that the other gospel writers did of this account. And we find in Mark's gospel, in chapter 9, verse 14, it says, when Jesus and the three disciples came to the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. Now, the scribes and the religious leaders are ridiculing Jesus publicly for their failure to heal the boy. So this is all just devolved into some big theological debate. And friends, the religious leaders have come and they don't actually care about this boy. The boy's over there left suffering. His father is left suffering. They don't care because the only thing they're concerned with is to prove how wrong Jesus and his disciples are. So he's not being helped. This has become a theological debate. And moreover... Mark fills in a detail that when the man runs up to Jesus and asks for help, he goes, well, I mean, if you can do anything about this, Jesus. 
And Jesus responds in Mark chapter 9, verse 23. He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So, friends, take count. The scribes and Pharisees, they lack faith. The man who seeks healing, he still lacks faith. And Jesus' own disciples who were asked to heal lacked the faith to do so. So when Jesus laments the lack of faith, he talks about this whole generation. He says, I can't find faith in this generation, in this people, in humanity. You are a faithless people. But friends, remember the gospel. Hear the good news. Our lack of faith does not hinder Jesus' compassion. Jesus' disciples had been unable to do. Jesus now does it with a word. And the boys healed. And the disciples are perplexed. In verse 19, we hear them ask, well, why couldn't we cast it out? Now, in the first century world, exorcism was thought to be a highly, highly dependent upon technique. And it seems here, maybe the disciples have fallen into some thought, think, flawed thinking. The emphasis in the question seems to be we. Why couldn't we cast it out? Our technique, our skills, our power. And Jesus has to remind them, guys, it's not about you. It's a good reminder. It's not about you. Verse 20, he says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Your problem is not a formula. Your problem is faith. Now, remember, when Jesus sent his disciples out in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, we heard him give them power and authority to drive out demons. Not secret arts, not techniques, but power. But friends, just as a lamp needs to be plugged into the outlet if it hopes to shine, the disciple of Jesus has to be plugged into the power of the Savior by faith if she hopes to shine. Faith is the connection to God. And church, if we are failing today, if we are struggling today, if it appears that the church is losing ground today, we don't need better technique. We need more Jesus. 20th century pastor Samuel Chadwick famously said, Satan dreads nothing except prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying because he fears nothing from prayerless studies, nothing from prayerless works, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Because, friends, prayer, faith, is the connection to the power. The answer to our problems, to our challenges, to our questions, to our failures, to our mission is more Jesus. And Jesus invites his disciples to himself. Church, Jesus is greater than techniques, greater than our wisdom. He's greater than our efforts. He's greater than our energy. Followers of Jesus, do we have faith that trusts and listens to Jesus? Church, where is your faith? Now, while the disciples are still marveling at Jesus' power and authority, Jesus again takes them aside to predict his death. Verses 17, chapter 17, verses 22 through 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man's about to be delivered in the hands of men. They'll kill him. He'll be raised on the third day. 
and they were greatly distressed. I mean, Jesus says, says, and let this sink in, he goes, he goes, you've just seen my power displayed again in driving out the demon. But understand this, despite all that power, I'm going to submit myself still to death. Peter, James and John up on the mountain, you saw my glory, but that glorification is not going to be happen until my humiliation. Friends, the power of Jesus will be demonstrated most clearly, not in its exercise, but in its restraint. At any time during his upcoming betrayal, trial, torture or crucifixion, Jesus could have delivered himself by his great power. But the great power of Jesus is demonstrated the most clearly in the great restraint of Jesus. And church, it's because of the restraint of Christ's power, it's because of his obedience that Christ receives glory. As Jesus taught the disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Suffering before glory. Humiliation is the way to exaltation. Restraint of Christ's great power and humiliation unto death is the road to his glorification. It's as the great Christ hymn celebrates in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, which sings, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, one day every eye will see and every ear will hear and every tongue will confess that the humiliated, the once humiliated Christ is now the risen and glorious Christ who shines like the sun for all of eternity. And friends, if you are here or watching online, if you never have before, what stops you from trusting the glorious Christ today? And Church of Jesus Christ, the mask is removed in this passage. Jesus is revealed and we see that he is glorious. And witnessing him as he is, church, what opponent will you now fear? Remembering The glorious Christ, what power are you now going to trust? Seeing again the the glorious Christ, what obedience might you now attempt? And remembering the glorious Christ, for whose glory are you now going to go and live for? For he is the glorious Christ. And as the voice from heaven said, listen to him. And church... Will we?